On 17 September 2010, uh, I was in checkpoint. Sergeant Diprasad Pun was uh, in a checkpoint on the outskirts of a village called Rahim Kalei, which had previously been a bit of a Taliban stronghold. And suddenly I had seen the two Taliban. What he didn't know, of course, was that what he'd seen was actually two of a large group of Taliban who were already in position, uh, poised to attack him and his checkpoint. Firing started coming from all around him. Effectively, for the next 15 minutes or so, he fought off several waves of attack. I was thinking at that time, uh, I was alone and there were many, and they definitely, they're definitely gonna kill me. He just stood there and they, they were not gonna get past him. And he'd obviously just decided that for himself. And he put himself in incredible danger to be able to do that. He was awarded the, the conspicuous gallantry cross, um, which is second only to the Victoria Cross and, uh, and an absolutely just recognition of what he did that night. I do really proud to be in Gurkhas um, because uh, my grandfather and my father was also Gurkhas. And I'm really proud to get this award. A Gurkha who single-handedly fought off an attack by more than a dozen Taliban fighters has been awarded Britain's second highest military medal, the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross. As the name suggests, it's given for acts of conspicuous gallantry and is second only to the Victoria Cross, which is awarded for most conspicuous bravery. In over 15 minutes of fighting, acting Sergeant Diprasad Pun fired 400 rounds of ammunition, 17 grenades, and when his rifle jammed, threw his machine gun tripod at one of his attackers. There were 12 to 15 Taliban, and I was alone. And one versus 12 to 15 Taliban had fight, and I defeated them. In doing so, he saved the lives of his three comrades and prevented the position from being overrun. At that time, they were around the checkpoint, and suddenly I noticed that um, I, I did not have any choice. I should have given up my life, and I did not care my life. Uh, just, I thought, before they kill me, I have to kill some of them. podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a very special guest on with me for this week's podcast. Uh, I'm on with Nims. Nims is a veteran of the Gurkhas and the British Special Forces. Uh, Nims, how's it going, brother? All good, brother. And uh, thank you so much for having me with you guys today. Yeah, I know you're incredibly busy. So, you know, I appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Um, so I'd like to start, Nims, if we can, and, and talk about your story and, and sort of your beginnings and then how you ended up getting into the Gurkhas and then uh, into the British military, in, into the Special Forces, I'm sorry. Yeah. So uh, I was obviously I was born in a little village in Nepal. Um, and then, you know, to start with, we are very poor. You know, my mom used to work in others' farm and... Uh, um, that kind of in a change slightly when my father joined joined the Gurkhas in the Indian Army. Um, so yeah, um, the whole kind of the, the 
the story changed when two of my brothers uh, made it to the British Gurkha. Uh, and uh, when they joined up, you know, me and my sister were very little. You know, the, the age gap between me and my elder brother is uh, 18 and a half years old. So when they joined up, um, obviously they didn't have really um, had the opportunity to go in a good school. So um, they sent us to the boarding school in Chitwan. So we moved to Chitwan at the very early age. Um, Chitwan is the most flat part of Nepal. Uh, but since I was a kid, you know, and I didn't really want it to be anything else. I just wanted to be a Gurkha. Um, one father and my brothers, you know, you know, obviously bring that kind of you know, traditions and all. And that's what I saw when I grew up. And uh, yeah, and in 2003, um, I joined the, the British Gurkhas um, amongst, um, well, there were there were about 30,000 of people applying for the selections. And uh only 200, 230 made it for the British soldiers, and uh, I was one of them. So then once you passed the selection course uh, to become a Gurkha, then at that point, do you move over to the UK? Yes. So how it works is, you know, the selection happens in Nepal. It's a selection once in a year. So all the men between 18 to 20 years old apply for the selection, uh, and it's all over the Nepal. Um, and once you pass the selection, you come back to England. That's where you move, and you train in Catrick. Uh, it's, it's quite north of England, and you do almost uh, almost a year of infantry training up there. So all of the Gurkhas are basically um, highly trained infantry soldiers. Yes, so you have to do nine months of infantry training, and after that you go into like different uh, regiments. You know, some goes to the rifles, some go to signals. You know, some goes to logistics, and and after that you you are divided. Yes, but the Gurkhas work within their own unit, so um, the Gurkha rifles would be full of you know like you know the Gurkha soldiers. So yeah. So basically, um, you know, you, you, you make it into the Gurkhas, you go through all of your training. Um, and what year was this that you completed uh, your selection and everything? Yeah, so once you finish your selections, you go to your respective, obviously, unit. For me, you know, I, well, I had to go to Gurkha engineers. Uh, and that's purely because my two brothers were in the Gurkha infantry. I had one brother in, in one first Gurkha rifles. And my oldest brother was in second Gurkha rifle, so they were like names you're not coming into this, <laughs> yeah. you know. Because uh, yeah, so obviously I picked engineers, um, and um, uh, from engineers, you know, I did an all arms commando course, and uh, um, and for the first time, I think um, I got deployed with Royal Marines Commando in uh, in in Afghanistan in 2007, um, and obviously after that, that's where. I decided to go for the selection for United Kingdom Special Forces, um, and in particular, I uh, wanted to go to SBS. So for those who don't know SBS, it is Special Boat Service, uh, which is equivalent to uh, SEAL Team 6 in the United States. Right. Okay, so then you, you went to your selection, you passed, and you got into the SBS. Uh, how long did you stay in the uh, Special Forces? So I served, you know, for the 10 years and um, I became the first ever Gurkha to go through the rank of uh, SBS as well. So um, the Gurkhas have been serving in the British um, Armed Forces for more than 200 years. 
uh, and I was uh, I was the first guy to do so. Um, so yeah, I had you know ten years uh, with uh, with the unit, and it was amazing. And you know, I have served uh, across the globe with uh, with our counterparts from uh, all over the world. Uh, yeah. Have you ever worked with American units? Yes, I have worked with your uh, Deb Group guys and uh, obviously Team Six and all. Nice. Okay. So yeah, that that that's pretty awesome. I mean. Um, for people who know, you know, the British SBS, the Special Boat Service, is a very elite unit. And um, American Tier 1 units are based off of their British Tier 1 counterparts, uh, SEAL Team 6, and uh, the Army Special Missions Unit. Um, so, very respected. Yeah, and Delta, unit. yes. Yeah, and Delta, right. So, um, so then you recently retired. Well, I didn't retire, so I had six years uh, to get my full pension uh, and, and kind of an immediate pension, which is more than um, in a half a million pound worth. So basically, I gave up all my pension, my job security, everything for this project. Okay, and normally Gurkha served for 15 years? Is that is that? Oh, uh, right? no, so... No, no, you know now you know you know the the twenty two years is um is, is the kind of you know the year that you know if you serve twenty two years you get in a kind of really good pension. Uh, just the rule changed recently, but before that, you know after twenty two years, uh, one you will get full pension and you were also entitled for immediate pension. But now you don't get the immediate pension, but you you still get the full pension. So yeah, I see. Okay, so you were in in a total for what like. Yes, yeah, so I had only years? six years left. Okay. Sixteen years left. To, well, I had only well six years left uh, to get in a full pension. So yeah. I see. Okay. So I, I, I served sixteen years. I see. Okay, so can we talk a little bit about the history of the Gurkhas? They have a very storied history. Um, for you know anyone who kind of knows about them. Yeah. So um, basically, you know, when uh, the the British were in India trying to rule the world, obviously. They, they were in India and they tried to obviously take over Nepal as well. Um, so what happened, long story short, is um, uh, either the British couldn't win and, and none of the Nepalese you know, soldiers could uh, win. And the, the forces of Nepal were really small figures, but they were fighting so bravely and, and they wouldn't let this British take over. So uh, what happened was at that point, obviously, the, the British obviously asked the government of Nepal, look, we will not fight with you guys anymore. But instead, can we have, you know, um, uh, you know, your Gorkha soldiers, you know, fighting alongside with us? And obviously, um, the government said yes. And since then, you know, we've been with uh, fighting alongside, you know, for, for more than 200 years. You know, we've been, we've been you know, um, you know with, with British for, uh, for more than, you know, like 200 years, you know, in so many um, you know, different conflicts. Um, so, yeah. And. And then what people know here and how they know the Gurkha is, uh, you know, they, they know by, you know, bravest of the bravest. And uh, there's also a saying like um, by a big um, a general, uh, a famous general, he said, uh, if someone says he's die, he's uh, he's not afraid of dying, um, either you must be a Gurkha or you are lying. So, yeah, uh, very good reputations we have in, um, in the British military and, and those who know us, yeah. Right, and the Gurkhas uh, served in... World War One, World War Two, and even yes, more correct. recently in Iraq and Afghanistan as well, right? Yeah. So there was a story I'd read about it. I forgot exactly when, 
um, where basically it was talking about a, a Gurkha who was serving in Afghanistan. Yeah. So the Gurkhas are sort of infamous for the knives that they carry, and you guys carry. Um, yes, cookery, yes. Right. <laughs> so it's like the signature you know, weapon of the Gurkhas. And yeah, yeah. So I was reading about this story, and it was uh, in Afghanistan, and I, I think if I remember correctly, the Gurkha was, uh, was on trial in the UK because he had, uh, they got into some kind of fight. Oh. And he, you know what I'm talking about? And he, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, I think, um, you know, one of the, the myths, well, the, the story how it's been told is, uh, so the officer asks in the Gurkha to bring, you know, obviously what we do is, you know, we bring the, the, the SSC and DNA evidence. Uh, and obviously, he chopped his head and, <laughs> and brought her so back. And totally obviously, that, yeah. <laughs> that kind of you know, went pretty crazy. So, yeah. So, he basically brought back this, this guy's head as uh, SSC yeah. evidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but also, in the, yeah, uh, I wouldn't really like to go in depth because some people might think, you know, uh, it is in your or yeah, so yeah, right, but right. hey. all good. Yeah, I remember reading about that, and I'm, I'm sure that caused um, a little bit of shock for some people, but um, yeah, you know, I know particularly in the UK. Because uh, I've had other veterans of the British military on here, and and um, mm -hmm. an issue that we'd spoken about was how how people who served in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan are now facing a lot of legal issues back home in the UK. Mm, I wouldn't, yeah, necessarily like to comment on that, brother. Right? No, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Let's move into another topic. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, cool. So you served for a total of 16 years, um, Gurkha and the Special Boat Service, and then yep. you retired. Um, I'm sorry, you didn't retire, but you, you got out. Um, yeah. So can we talk about for, for why you got out and, and what it is that you're doing these days? Yeah, so yeah, so basically, you know, when I went for a Special Forces selection, you know, I never went there for, for the money or, or fame, and it was pure love for the job and then how they roll um so that was it so you know even this for, for the project even though i was um you know i would lose in you know, a job security and more than in you know, a half a million pound of, uh, worth of guaranteed pension i gave up because this is something what i feel like you know you know everybody uh, around the world would uh would benefit and the story and if i do this well i thought like i would be able to inspire the whole generations and send uh so many positive messages across the globe. So I came with the project. So the project is um, obviously there are 14 highest mountains in the world at 1,000 meters, and there are only 14 of those. Uh, the fastest climbing someone has climbed all this mountain is 80 years, and I'm trying to do that in seven months. Wow. So just to put in lemon stump for those who doesn't understand, you know, yeah, this is like me trying to say, yeah, I will complete, you know, full marathon in 14 minutes. So, so that's why, you know, the world didn't believe it. When I first came with this, uh, obviously, proposal, nobody believed it. Some of the, uh, some of the mountains even made the joke out of me. And, and that is a fact. Um, and w I went to so many, sp like, corporates, organizations, and everybody, but nobody believed it. So... It was very hard to get the sponsors for this project. Um, it was super hard. 
Um, so what I did was I sold my house uh, first, remortgaged it, and then put 55,000 pounds toward the project. And some of my friends, um, Colin Campbell from DG2L, he put 25K. And then this is how it started, okay? Uh, but long story short, you know, when I went for the start of the first phase, uh, I didn't have the full funds, uh, just even for the first phase. Uh, but when when I went and climbed Annapurna, Annapurna is the most dangerous mountain in the world. You know, one in four days of, uh, over there. Um, and also, like, um, yeah, over there, I, I set up the lines. I also opened, obviously, uh, me and my team opened the, the route that has never been climbed since 1970. Uh, but also after that, you know, we, we went and rescued Mr. Chin, who was supported, uh, who was reported to be lost um, or missing on the mountain for more than 36 hours. Uh, when you know, people started on me and then they started um, and all. Before we get back to the podcast with NIMS, well, I would like to talk to you about this week's sponsors for this podcast, All Active or Retired Military. Were you diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss after using 3M's dual-ended earplugs? These earplugs were yellow and black or yellow and olive. They were often called Christmas lights. Instead of protecting your hearing, they actually permitted damaging sounds to get through. If you were issued these earplugs while in service, and then diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss, then call 800-567-8936 because you may qualify for significant cash compensation. Again, if you served in the military and were issued 3M dual-ended yellow and dark earplugs and were later diagnosed with hearing loss or tinnitus, then call 800-567-8936 right now to see if you qualify for cash compensation. 3M knew of the defects but failed to warn anyone about them. A whistleblower lawsuit that 3M quietly settled made the case that 3M manipulated test results to make it appear as if the plugs met government standards, but they didn't. So if you were in the military any time from 2003 through 2015 and are now suffering from diagnosed hearing loss or tinnitus, then please call 800-567-8936 right now. The lawsuit is against 3M and not the government or the military, so your benefits with the VA will not be affected. Here's the phone number one last time so you can get it. 800-567-8936. So h- how long have you been working on this project so far? Um, sorry, sorry, what's your question? So uh, how long has this entire project uh, been in the works so far? Like, So obviously, um, you know, the, the, the project now is obviously I have climbed 11 8,000 meter peaks, um, including K2. Um, in just 93 days, uh, and I've got three more to go. That's in Pakistan, right? Climb. Yeah. So, and I, I have at the moment I have broke more than six speed world records. Um, I'm the first ever guy in in the planet to climb all the mountains above 8,000 meter in Pakistan in one season. Um, and yeah, and and and, and one of the one of the record I did was I climbed Everest, Lhotse, and Makalu. That's world first fourth and fifth highest mountain in 48 hours. Wow. Um, I have done like four rescues above 8,000 meters while I'm breaking this record as well. Um, opened the routes for, for so many other seasons mountaineer uh, this year. And uh, um, and also in K2, when 90% of the seasons mountaineer gave up, I went and opened the route, not only for my team, for, for remaining of the, of the seasons mountaineers, um, yeah, so many stuff. Um, but now I have got three more mountains to go, and uh, basically I had planned to have a bit of rest with my family. But 
Uh, there was no fund uh, for the third phase of the project. So I had to get back in England, uh, start working, doing all the PR stuff, uh, just to get, you know, the funds for the for the third phase. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been never been easy, you know. And then the way I would describe the project is, uh, and it's been you know horrifically amazing, brother. Uh, but the whole reason why you know I cannot give up, you know, at any stage is uh, is because this project is not for me. You know, it's, it's for everybody. You know, you know I do get messages from so many people who are following my story on Instagram. Um, for those who are not following or those who are listening to this podcast. I'm at Nimstai on Instagram, but yeah, people have been uh, messaging me, you know, how they are inspired and all. So it's been great, brother, and it's been great to inspire everybody. And also, you know, the people of Nepal, you know, the Serpa, they have always been the frontier of a thousand meters, but then they never got the right credibility. So I'm also trying to bring that name, you know, uplift that name again. Um, of course, you know, one, you know, I'm trying to do something that, you know, it's never been done. Um, so I'm trying to establish a, a paradigm shift in perception of human potential. But also, I'm, you know, I've got so many things. You know, I'm supporting my, my charities, you know, two, two, one military charity, one charity is in Nepal. And also, I'm raising the awareness about global warming and all. And people ask, why you have got so many reasons, you know, so many causes? And I said, well, because I'm climbing so many mountains. So, yeah. Right. Um, but hey. Right. I mean, that that's pretty awesome. Did you, so did you get your, your love for climbing uh, growing up in Nepal or did that come to, to you through the military? No. So I, I only started climbing from uh, December 2012. Okay. Yeah. So is that, so I know like in Nepal and, and you mentioned the Sherpas. Um, so the Sherpa basically is, is like a mountain guide. Is that what it means? No, so, so Serpa is a caste, but um, now, you know, obviously what it tends is like, like it's kind of, you know, a tribe that works on the mountain, uh, obviously, you know, guiding and all. So I think the definition of Serpa could be different, you know, varies from who you speak. But yeah, you are kind of in the right, who, you know, there are those people who, who works on the, on, on the big, big mountains. Right, because I, I used to work with someone um, whose last name was Sherpa. And um, I, I was watching, I, I knew she was from Nepal, and I was watching a, a, this documentary uh, called Meiru, and, and that's a mountain somewhere yeah. in Nepal. And and they had mentioned, I think somewhere in there, they had mentioned something about Sherpas. And then I had spoken to her about okay. it, and she said, yeah, you know, Sherpas are, are uh, basically uh, people who work on the mountains and stuff. Yeah. So then, did you do any uh, mountaineering? Like, did you um, like learn about climbing and stuff like that during your time in the military, or was that like you did? It on uh, your own? Yes, yes, I did a bit. So basically, you know, I was, you know, when I left, you know, I retired as a chief instructor for for the SBS in extreme cold weather warfare environment. Um, but that's you know that's a bit of different skills. But um, yeah, I started climbing while I was in the service as well. So when I got three weeks. I used to go and climb 8,000 meter peaks. You know, when people take two months to climb, you know, any 8,000 meter peaks, I used to be able to climb that in three weeks. So whenever I have a bit of, you know, leave, um, yeah, and one of the story I will tell you. So in, in 2016, on a pre-deployment leave, that's a leave before you go to Afghanistan, um, I went to the bank on the leave and obviously I told them I, I need a loan to buy a car. Um, took the loan, emptied my saving. I went to Nepal to climb Everest. Nobody knew it, not my family, just only who knew uh, about this was my wife. 
Um, long story short, I climbed Everest summit um, and obviously you know, rescued a girl from 8,450 meters. Uh, she was left you know, behind by her team, you know, by her you know, guides and all, um, brought her back down safe. Uh, and within within four days of summiting Everest, I was in Afghanistan kicking those, and nobody knew about this. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, with the uh, recently, uh, a couple of years ago, the documentary Meru came out, and then uh, most recently was Free Solo. So I feel like yeah. these these documentaries have sort of brought a light to some of these uh, these climbers, uh, you know things that you're doing and, and people who are uh, climbing uh, similar to how you you do it. And it's really fascinating. I think even if you're not really into that kind of thing, I think it's just fascinating to see uh, human beings pushing themselves beyond, you know, what we would consider the normal limits. Yeah, absolutely, brother. So then are you now in your third phase of, of the climbing? Yeah, so I am in the third phase of the climbing, and I have got um, Manaslu, Choyu, and Sisatangma. They are the most easiest one. Um, and you know, as I said, you know, from the day one, you know, when when nobody believed it, I said to everybody, like, the only thing that will stop me from this project is either the funding or either the objective danger. Like, for example, if the avalanche came and take me away, then I cannot do anything about it. But the subjective danger, something like you know. The weather conditions, snow conditions, you know, health, managing all the endurance, etc. I said, you know, that wouldn't really bother me. And then people thought I was, I was arrogant. But you know what? You know, I have climbed now 11 mountains. I have climbed in some of the conditions where, you know, it's extremely, you know, horrendous. Like weather conditions, like wind conditions, up to 60 to 75 kilometers, and we were climbing without ropes. Extremely dangerous, you know, and everything what I say is backed by by video evidence. So hopefully, when the documentary comes out, you know, you know, people can see, you know, what I've been through. And and I, I have been saying this to everyone, you know, what I'm telling now, uh, even in this podcast, and what people are seeing on my Instagram, uh, and all is only the five percent of what I have been through. Right. So you know, there's a lot to it. There's more things to it. You know, you know, the rescue that we did. Um, you know, for example, at Kanchenjunga. Um, you know, from 8,450 meters, you know, we gave our oxygen um, and we started rescuing. And that's like something lethal, extremely, um, you know, extreme kind of, you know, you know, stuff that I have ever done in my life. So, yeah, it's been it's been hell of a journey, but uh, but quite, quite in a good way. Um, yeah. And I hope um, I hope to bring that in a, in a good documentaries and book uh, later on probably next year. So. For the the documentary aspect of it, um, and I see that you know the postings that you have on social media, and and, and it's really like crazy to see it, um, you know, because of how high you guys are up and and, and things like that. Um, so, do you have like a team doing some of the filming, or are you kind of doing that on your own? No. So basically, you know, I struggle to obviously get the funded for for me and my team to climb. So everything what we have been filming is uh, is by us. Um, but, you know, believe me, they are filmed in, in such a great quality. And some of the producers have already seen the clip and they are very keen to make the documentaries about it. So, so yeah, but, you know, we have been filming, we have been climbing at the same time. We've been doing rescues at the same time. We've been fixing lunch at the same time. So, yeah. And uh, I want to ask about your team. Uh, is your team like climbers from the UK or... No, so they all are like Sherpas from Nepal, and most okay. of these guys are those who I, who I have climbed in before. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's a team of you know, uh, you know, myself and five other you know Nepalese Sherpas. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty awesome just to, just looking at the social media and so. When did you make your social media? Did you make it like within the last year? Yeah. So basically, when I first came out and and told everyone about this project, you know, it's it's very crazy, brother. This world. People ask me like, how many followers you have on Instagram? How many followers? All this crazy thing. But the thing is, I didn't have that luxury because I was still in, in special boat service. Like the the story that I told you about 2016, mm-hmm. where I climbed Everest with no one knowing in, in the leave and risking all that. Nobody knew about it. That thing never came out, you know. And um, obviously, yes, uh, yeah. To answer that question, your question, yeah, I started only uh, only you know earlier this year. Yeah, because I remember when I remember when you first started. Like I, I was following you. I, I think you only had like you know a couple thousand followers, like like under five, you know. Yeah. And then um, yeah. I was doing a podcast with um, James Glancy, who's also served in the SBS, and he yeah. had, he had mentioned you. And then when he brought your name up, I'm like, yo, I think I follow him on Instagram. And then after me and James finished up our podcast, I I went to your profile and I was like, holy shit! Like you went from like three thousand to like. You know where you're at now, which is what are you like over a hundred? No, one hundred and thirty k. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge jump. I, I was <laughs> yeah. like, holy shit! And but, you know, looking at your profile, the content is really amazing. Um, you know, just to see Thank the images so and and videos, you know, from from places where it's really difficult for human beings to go. Okay, thanks, John. And, and obviously, as I say, you know, that's only you know five percent of what what I have been claiming. So. More to come out in the in the flame or document to whatever we're gonna uh, we're gonna make up you know afterwards. Right, right, yeah. Well, I, I definitely want to see it. So, how much longer do you have for the the entire uh, climbing to finish? So I got three mountains and I got three months. So yeah, obviously you know the funding has always been the issue. So I'm guiding on the first mountain of the third phase. So I'm guiding in Manaslu um, to to generate of enough in the funding. Um, and after that, I'm I'm off. Hopefully, I can just go and crack um, and and finish the remainder of the two. So, I will finish this project um, on 22nd of October. Um, but also, I'm working. You know, I'm guiding again on Amadablom, you know, which is one of the most technical mountain in, in the Himalayas um, on 24th. So, I just have two days rest after this project, and and I'm off again to the mountains guiding. Um, yeah. So then the. The mountains that you have to finish the project, are they both in Nepal or all three of them? Are they in Nepal? Uh, so one of them is in Nepal. Two of them are in Tibet. In Tibet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And have you climbed in Tibet before? No. It's exactly like same in Pakistan. I had never climbed, uh, you know, any mountains in Pakistan before, um, but I went and smashed it. So it's nice. okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 really awesome to see it. And do you guys have like a date for when you expect the documentary to be ready? Yeah, so we will start in you know, a climbing Manaslu from uh, I would say any any time from seventh of uh, September. So yeah. Oh okay. Oh seventh of September of next year. No, this month. Oh this okay. So next month, next month this year. Wait, so the documentary will be finished by next month? No, it will be finished by October, so within two months. I see. Okay, okay. All right. Okay, cool. Um, so so I wanted to ask if we can kind of go back to your military um, career. 
Um, so you deployed once with the Gurkhas and then a couple of times with the SBS? Yeah, yeah. Multiple tours with the, with the Special Boat Service. Right. And the globe, yeah. Yeah, outside of James, I've, I had one more uh, SPS guy on here before. Um, you you may know him, I'm not sure. His name is Foxy. Yeah, yeah, I know him, Foxy, yes. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he does, like, you know, the TV and stuff like that in the UK. Yeah, yeah, he does, bro. Right, oh, right on. So Cool. Yeah, it was it was great having you on here. You know, I know you're super busy, so Thank I, you, I really, really yeah. appreciate you doing this, brother. It's, uh, it's completely fine. And, and look, thank you so much for having me with you today. And uh, I look forward to speaking at your podcast when, when I'm done with this project. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Good. And can I make a quick, uh, quick, um, you know, um, kind of, you know, request to those who are listening? Yes, for sure. For sure. Okay. You know, thank you so much for listening, uh, you know, guys. And, and if you are listening to this, you know, if you really want to support this project and be part of of you know history making and something amazing you know you can go to my website which is www.projectpossible.co.uk and also you can follow my journey uh, on Instagram and Facebook at nimstai that is November India Mike Shera Delta Alpha India nimstai thank you uh, thank you brother several times in recent years one particular news item has inspired viewers to voice their opinions very loudly the plight of the Gurkha veterans drew overwhelming sympathy and support. More than 200,000 Gurkhas served in both world wars, eventually becoming part of the British Army. Members of the brigade have been awarded no fewer than 13 Victoria Crosses. Well, later in the festival, another distinguished Gurkha will be carrying the Book of Remembrance. But now, we welcome the pipes, band, and dancers of the Brigade of Gurkhas, directed by Major Vernon Yates. <laughs> 